Morning, church. Morning. I'm regularly amazed at how sermon passages planned months in advance can meet the needs of the moment so well. We often think of the Holy Spirit's work as a spontaneous work, which it is sometimes. But the Holy Spirit can be at work in prayerful planning as much as He is in spontaneous promptings. But this morning, we plan to be in 1 Samuel 26, but I sensed from the Lord a pushing towards Hebrews chapter 10. It began last Thursday night as I was blowing leaves into the street, and it increased with intensity over the weekend. So let's pray, and then let's turn to the Lord's Word in Hebrews chapter 10, and let's listen carefully as we do every week to what He has to say to us this morning. Father, we, we want to approach your word with the eagerness that a watchman waits for morning. There's a longing for the dawn to take away the anxiety and the pressure. And we want that level of eagerness as we approach your word every time it's open before us. In the quiet of our own homes, in Sunday classes, in small groups, and in this context when we gather corporately to hear your word proclaimed and read and sung. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would strengthen us by your word this morning. We want to wait on you. We want our souls to wait. We want to put our hope in your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as an elder, I get to watch you contend and fight for endurance. In a host of situations, I thank God for your resolve. You wrestle for strength to press on in circumstances that are tremendously difficult. For how long have you prayed desperately for your adult child to come to faith in Christ? For how long have you pled with Jesus to remove your struggle with same-sex attraction, but he hasn't? And so you quietly soldier on, seeking to be faithful to Jesus in your sexuality. For how long have you asked Jesus to bring relief to your physical pain, but every morning you wake up with a painful wince? For how long have you prayed for the salvation of your spouse who continually mocks your faith in Jesus? For how long have you struggled with disappointment over how the church in your eyes has compromised to the political left or the political right? For how long have you fought for contentment as you processed loneliness without a spouse or without the children that you've prayed for? For how long have you asked God to heal your marriage that feels so hopelessly broken? For how long has anger or sexual sin or materialism gripped your heart and you've longed for help and you're so weary of asking Jesus for his grace and you're tired of the damage that your sin struggles carry out in your life. Fill in the blank. The point is we need endurance. The question is, where do we find endurance? 
I think the reason that God led us to Hebrews 10 this morning instead of 1 Samuel 26, which we'll come back to after Advent, is the spiritual weight that I'm sensing we're carrying as a church family. Our collective struggle against sin, our own or someone else's, and suffering, just life in a world that's been broken by sin, that spiritual weight is heavy right now. And this morning is a call for the church's endurance, a call for us to find our strength in God, to press ahead day by day, trusting His goodness and His greatness. And here's what we'll see in Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25. The church endures by gathering to anchor ourselves in Jesus. That's how we endure. We endure by gathering to anchor ourselves in Jesus. We gather here corporately each Lord's Day, but we gather throughout the week in smaller groups and one-on-one. We gather, and when we gather, we need to anchor one another in Christ. That's how we endure. So this morning, we're going to follow a simple outline, two truths, three commands, and one commitment. Two truths, three commands, one commitment. The two truths... In verses 19 to 21, you can picture them as a strong bedrock, a foundation, two truths that make up the bedrock of our endurance. Jesus died and Jesus lives. That's the bedrock truth of our endurance. Look at verses 19 through 20, but let me pray. Did I pray? I don't think I prayed. Did I pray? I did pray. Okay, I prayed. Here we go. Hello. 19 to 20. All prayed up. (laughs) Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now, therefore, presses us back to understand what's already been said that's going to influence what's about to be said. Okay, so what has already been said in chapter 10 of Hebrews? In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Old Testament sacrifices were shadows. They weren't the substance. They were shadows that couldn't actually make someone perfect. Chapter 10, verse 4, the author says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It can't happen. Chapter 10, verse 8, God never actually took pleasure in those animal sacrifices because they couldn't take away sins. And that's what God longed for. Chapter 10, verse 11. The priests stood daily offering repeated sacrifices which could never actually take away sins. But Jesus is different. Look at verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 10. But... When Christ had offered for all time, all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. His death was sufficient. His death happened one time, and that one death for all time, for all sins, for all those who would trust Christ, taken care of. Jesus in his death has perfected each of us who are being sanctified. We're still growing in holiness, but Jesus' death 
has ensured our perfection for all of us who trust him. God says, I'll remember their sins no more. I will throw their sins into the heart of the sea and they will not be remembered. That's the sufficiency of Christ's death over against those repeated sacrifices made over and over and over again. Now, what about the curtain? He says in verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. What curtain? The curtain that's being referenced here is the curtain that was in Israel's temple. It was a 60-foot tall, 30-foot wide curtain that blocked God's special presence on the earth from the rest of the earth. The curtain was a visible reminder that there was a barrier, a boundary, a block between humans and God. It was very clear to all of Israel and to any non-Israelites who were paying attention. God was on the other side of that curtain And we're on this side. And so once a year, one high priest would cleanse himself through ritual washing and then would move cautiously into God's presence, would move cautiously beyond that veil, beyond that curtain into God's presence. And that priest offered an animal sacrifice that temporarily covered the people's sins but did not take them away. But this was not the kind of relationship that God wanted with his people. He did not want a cautious relationship with his people. He didn't want his people to be filled with trepidation. But they were sinful, and but he was holy. So what is he to do? God wants us to be in a joyful relationship with him. God is planning for us a wedding feast, eternal worship in his presence. And so Jesus dies. And at the moment Jesus dies... I think it's Matthew's gospel that tells us that this massive curtain was torn from top to bottom, 60 foot high, 30 feet wide, and it was torn from top to bottom at the moment Jesus dies and gives up his spirit back to the Lord. But the tearing of the visible curtain was a representation of a spiritual truth. Jesus' flesh was torn, and the physical curtain in the temple was torn, so Jesus' flesh was torn. And as the path into that sacred place in the temple was opened, so the path into God's presence was thrown open. The obstacle between God and man was torn open. The Trinity says, you can come now. You can come into the presence of God because of Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. Reconciliation between sinful people and a holy God is now made possible by the torn flesh of Christ. Jesus' death delivers his people confidence to enter into God's very presence. And that's half of the theological foundation for our endurance. Jesus died and secured our confident access into God's presence. But it's not just that he died, it's also that he lives. And as he lives, he constantly prays for us in effective ways. Look at verse 21. Since we have a great priest over the house of God. There's a chain of logic here that begins with the first word in verse 19, therefore. It's building on all that came before it. Brethren, 
And then he uses the word since twice. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, since we have confidence because of the death of Christ, and then in verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus is not still dead. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father praying for us. And that becomes the other half of the foundation for our endurance. Jesus died and Jesus lives. And as our high priest, as the one who sits next to the Father, Jesus does at least four things. In Hebrews chapter 7.25, we see that Jesus is continually praying for us. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Second thing, as our high priest, Jesus defends us from every hissing accusation from the enemy. Here's Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn God's people? Those who have drawn near to him by faith. Who is to condemn them? Jesus Christ is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, is praying for us. There's no one to contend with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Number three, Jesus as our high priest advocates for us. He supports us when we sin. 1 John 2.1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Christian, your sin does not affect your eternal relationship with God because you have an advocate, a supporter in Jesus at the Father's right hand who is advocating in your defense. Number four, as our high priest, Jesus sits in victory. Jesus is waiting at the right hand of the Father. He knows he's victorious and he's waiting for Satan to be beat back from every corner of creation as the gospel is proclaimed and people believe on his name. He sits reigning. He sits effectively. He sits victoriously. That's the one who's praying for you. The one who is already victorious and is just waiting for that victory to be realized in creation. Two foundations, two truths that make up the bedrock of our endurance. Jesus died a sufficient death. Jesus lives and he lives to pray for us. He ensures that we will endure. We who started will be perfected because of Jesus' prayers on our behalf. That's the foundation. Jesus stands over us as a priest. Can you feel it? Can you feel these theological truths and how they drive in us this sense that it doesn't finally depend on us? It depends on what he's already accomplished and what he is continuing to ensure will happen. Jesus is once for all sacrifice for sins and his ongoing priesthood on our behalf. So take every one of those struggles and bathe them in the truth that Jesus died and defeated every one of our enemies. He is our brother and he has made God our father. No matter how much we mess up, no matter how much shame we feel over our sin, he has given us confidence with God Confidence that cannot be shaken. No matter how much is broken in our lives, this relationship is secure and this relationship is eternal. And Jesus lives.
He's praying for us. You picture him in the room next door to you. He is on his knees praying for you. Praying that you would endure in faith and knowing that his prayers will be effective. Those are the two truths that make up the foundation of our endurance. Now, growing up out of that bedrock of truths are three massive pillars, three commands, three fearless commands. Therefore, brethren, since Jesus died, verse 21, since Jesus lives, and then he says, let us. Three times we hear this phrase, let us, followed by commands for faith, hope, and love. Now, I say fearless because when we're in the face of these struggles that are threatening our endurance of faith, we need to be fearless, believing things that we cannot see. We need to outlive, outsee what's in front of us and anchor our hearts in what we know to be true by faith. Three fearless commands. First, in verse 22, let us draw near with confident faith. Let us draw near with confident faith. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near to who? Draw near to God. That was the point of the curtain. The curtain kept us from God. The curtain is torn and the way into God's presence is thrown open for us. So Christian, draw near to God with confident faith. Jesus has guaranteed our peace through his broken body and torn flesh. So confidently draw near to him. Draw near to him with a true or sincere or genuine heart that's fully assured and convinced of what is true. Your heart now is true and sincere and genuine, and you can draw near. Draw near with your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You hear that, Christian? You are clean. Your heart is no longer tarnished. Your heart is clean. It's made new. You are a new creature in Christ. You are alive. No shame, no despair. Come confidently into his presence with faith. Draw near with your body washed with pure water. You are new, your sins are washed away, and you are forgiven. And the writer of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit says, draw near with confident faith. But though he says, draw near, what do we do? We're tempted to move away when we sin. We put down our phone and we shrink back in fear. We walk away from the angry outburst and we move away from God. We run from Him. We say to ourselves, how can I possibly come to Him again? And so we move away and we hide in the bushes when we hear His footsteps walking in the garden. Church family, don't shrink back from God in fear. Don't run from Him. Draw near to Him with confident faith. You're seeing not only what your eyes can see, you're seeing with the heart of faith what's true about you because of what you believe, about what Christ has done in your place. So lean forward with boldness. Let us draw near with confident faith and then let us hold fast with unwavering hope. Let us hold fast with unwavering hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised 
is faithful. Why do we have hope? Because he who promised is faithful. He who made the promises is good to his word. We can count on it. That's why we have hope. That's why we can hold fast unwaveringly with hope because Jesus is faithful to his promises. Jesus promised us life and love and eternity and joy and light and righteousness and rest. And Jesus is faithful to his promises. So when it feels like his promises won't come to pass, when everything looks bleak, when cancer returns or another job is lost, hold fast with hope. Hold fast with hope when the pressure comes. Hold fast with hope and the pressure won't let up. Hold fast with hope unwaveringly because he who promised is faithful. Get up each morning knowing that Jesus died for your reconciliation and Jesus lives to pray for your endurance. Here's the third command, the third pillar that rises out of those two truths. Let us stir up others with devoted love. Let us stir up others with devoted love. Look at the beginning, or look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Consider, Christian, think about, ponder. How do you stir up or stimulate or provoke? The word could even mean irritate. How do you do that? We're a family. And to what end are we stirring one another up? Are we provoking one another? The writer says to love and to good works or good deeds. As you strive for endurance, strengthen others to love deeply and to do good. So keep your eyes on one another during trouble. Keep your head up. Keep your eyes moving in the middle of trouble. We're tempted when trouble comes to turn in on ourselves. And the writer of Hebrews says, keep your eyes sharp. Who else is paying attention? Who's watching you fight for endurance? Who's watching you rejoice through chronic pain? Who's watching you hold on to God with hope in grief? Who's watching you rest in God's sovereignty during trouble? Who's watching you endure? And how can your endurance provoke and stir up others to love and to good deeds? Your endurance delivers strength to others as they fight to endure themselves. You help provoke them to love God and to love people above all else. You help them to respond righteously to the things in their lives that are difficult. You help them to react in persecution with holiness. The triumvirate of Christian virtues is commanded for us based on the theological foundation of Jesus dying and Jesus living. And the writer of Hebrews says, faith, hope, and love. That's what should mark you. That's what presses us forward towards endurance. And all three of these pillars lead toward one steadfast commitment. And that steadfast commitment in verse 25 is to gather. Gather. Verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a tendency that the Holy Spirit raises for us here and that the Holy Spirit intends to address, a tendency that we all struggle with. When trouble comes, we tend to scatter. We tend to pull back from others. Why is that? 
Maybe it's because of our shame over our sin. It could be our embarrassment because we can't handle our own circumstances. Or maybe it's despair and feeling sorry for ourselves that pushes us to isolate and pull back from others. We're in pain and we want others to know it, and so we pull back. The writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect to gather. Some Christians have made not gathering a habit. Don't do that. Instead, gather in order to encourage one another and do this gathering and this encouraging with greater and greater intensity as the day draws near. What day? The day when Christ will reappear in the clouds for us. When our endurance is finally done. When we no longer need to walk by faith, but we see Him by sight. Here's Hebrews 9.28 for a close reference on the day. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, which He already dealt with, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. As we move closer to this day when Christ will return for those waiting for Him, the pressures against the church will increase and the pressures within the church will increase. The closer we get to that second coming, the more the pressure will increase outside and inside the church. And here's the thing. The spiritual weight, our spiritual weight, is heavy at a time when our gathering habits have been interrupted. We are feeling a tremendous amount of spiritual weight in a season when our gathering habits have been interrupted. We've lost a, tunnel, a ton of muscle memory through the pandemic and the political divisions of the last three years. Now I'm gonna insert a caveat here. I know that some of you who are listening at home right now want to be here, but feel that you can't be here because of your health. Now, I'm not interested in leveling additional or unnecessary guilt, but I do want to challenge you to keep praying about your decision. Humbly, before the Lord and with others, pray about your decision. But beyond that group of people, there are other groups of people who need to hear this. There are others of you who have lost the desire to gather. You've lost the desire to gather. Perhaps it's because you're frustrated or disappointment or hurt with the Big C Church in America or with this local church. If that's you, don't neglect the gathering of the church. Come and air your grievances and let's talk through them. Or for others of you, it's because something has become more important in your heart, in your value system, than what happens when we gather together. Not just here, but I am talking about here, but gathering with Christians in general. Something has become more valuable than that. Whether it's work or sports or excessive travel, fill in the blank, something has displaced the value of what God can accomplish in the gathering of His people. If that's you, the hard truth this morning is you've been fooled into thinking that you can live the Christian life in an isolated way. 
You cannot do it. And that's the message of Hebrews 10. That's the hard truth of Hebrews chapter 10. Don't neglect it because you can't survive without it. You have to gather with God's people. And we'll talk about what that looks like in a minute so that it's meaningful and not just a box check. Now, this is problematic because we can't endure on our own. We have to anchor one another in Jesus. All the more, the writer of Hebrews says, as the day of Christ's return draws near. So let's talk about gathering in two contexts. Gathering throughout the week when we're scattered in this city and then gathering when we're here in this building. Cherrydale, we're aiming at being a family. We may not get it right, but that's what we're aiming at. And that means we want to drive deeper in one another's lives. It's why we talk about meaningful membership, not just membership. We want to know one another. We want to actually live together as a family. We want elders who know this flock and shepherd them. We want members who know one another. Not every member to the same degree, but we want to be known and we want to work to know this church, this community of individuals that are gathered here. Surface conversations and relationships, they do serve a purpose, but we want to drive towards something deeper. We're moving from what's happening in our lives, the circumstances, what's going on in our lives, to how we're responding to what's going on in our lives, to why we're responding to the, thing, the ways that we're responding to the things that are happening in our lives. From the what to the how to the why, we want to know one another deeply so that we can anchor each other in Jesus. We want to gather with others in ways that allow us to legitimately rejoice and grieve with each other. We want to ask good questions of others so that we understand one another's struggles with sin and suffering. And then we want to rappel down into that struggle and we want to feel it with them. And we want to lighten the burden by our presence and by our words as we anchor one another to Jesus. We want to help one another draw near with faith, to hold fast with hope, and to be stirred up with love. And to do this, we need to aim at relationships that are both honest and encouraging. We're not just vulnerable. We're also wanting to insert the truth into those areas of vulnerability. We're not just transparent, but we're hungry for the word to speak through other Christians, empowered by the Spirit, as they bring God's truth to bear and as they anchor us to Christ. So Cherrydale, let's live our life together. Let's gather in ways that are intentional and prayerful. Let's overlap our schedules. If you're not in a life group, join a life group. Invite people into your homes. Life groups are Wandavie's new word for small groups, by the way. <laughs> Go out for coffee. Pick up the phone. Gather throughout the week in this city to anchor one another to Jesus. Now, gathering on the Lord's Day, try not to dismiss me as a legalist. Try to hear me in a fresh way. Because I think that part of what the writer of Hebrews is after is this gathering of God's people, what happens on Sunday mornings together. The worship of God's people, and I don't just mean our singing together, I mean the entire gathering. From 8.30 prayer meeting until the last person leaves this building, we want to intentionally gather together. And we want to gather in a meaningful way. We're not just looking to show up and check a box. Here are six ways that you can gather. 
I've given you a lot of lists today. Here are six ways that you can gather in the Lord's day that will make it meaningful. Gather as a contributor. Don't be a consumer. Don't be an observer. This is a core conviction of our church family. Be a contributor. We often circulate an article called the Ministry of the Pew. The whole point of that Australian article is to show us that we want to lean in on Sunday mornings, that every member of this church family should come on Sunday mornings ready to be a minister of the gospel. It starts by going to bed on time Saturday night so that you're awake, so that you're here early, so that you're ready to engage and love the people around you, to pray about where you sit and what conversations that you have. Be a contributor to this body when you gather. Second, gather as a sinner. Those two aren't in conflict. You don't need to paper over your struggles when you're here. You can come broken. You can be forthright about where you're struggling with sin and suffering. This is a place where those things are accepted. We don't accept one another because we're all set. We accept one another because we're gathered around Christ. And so you can be open about where you're struggling, and then you can receive the healing touch of God's grace. Gather as a contributor, gather as a sinner, gather as a hearer. Number three, hear the word as it's taught in Sunday classes, as it's read in services, as it's preached and as it's sung. Hear the word, long for it as watchmen long for the morning and hear one another. Ask good questions, fellowship together, engage in meaningful conversations. Let your friendships be strengthened week after week after week as you hear one another. Number four, gather as a singer. I stood right over there last Sunday to pray for people while we sang It Is Well. And I heard you singing It Is Well in between prayers. And you helped me endure some heavy discouragement last week. Just listening to you sing those truths like you meant it was an encouragement and a source of strength to my own heart. Come as a singer. Sing to the Lord with all your heart. Mean it. Let the words fill your minds and sing them to the Lord and to each other. Gather as a contributor, a sinner, a hearer, a singer. Number five, gather as a prayer. There are countless opportunities for you to pray on Sunday mornings. Long before you get here, you pray in the car on the drive over. You can come to 8.30 prayer meeting. You can pray for people before and after the service. You can pray after those meaningful conversations. Pray for one another. You can pray during the service. You can come for prayer. You can pray after the service. We gather for the word and we gather to pray because the Spirit works in our midst through both. Number six, gather as an evangelist or an evangelizer if you want it to end with that er sound. Gather as an evangelist. There are children, there are teenagers, there are adults who gather with us every Sunday who haven't yet come to faith in Christ. We can't lose that edge. We have to remember that there are people whom God wants to call from death to life every time we gather. Pray that God would do it and be ready to share your faith. Now, circling back to the caveat, if you feel you can't gather on Sundays because of your health, then find ways to do as many of these things as you can. Be creative. Pick up the phone before and after the Sunday gathering and encourage one another. Be praying. 
Be seriously committed to gathering with us. Don't listen to the sermon later in the week. The sermon is only part of what we do when we gather. Set the time aside at 1030 and sit in front of the computer and participate with what we're doing in as much as you can. We gather throughout the week. We gather here on the Lord's day. This is it. This is the day that the Lord has gathered his church for worship. Come and gather and minister the gospel. Last week, I came to church discouraged. I was overwhelmed by responsibilities. I was frustrated with my own sinful response to my responsibilities. And I came to prayer meeting at 8.30, and I felt the pulsating strength of brothers and sisters laboring for God's help. And I'm not overstating that. I was in a Sunday class where we saw Paul treating suffering as a way to experience Christ's death and resurrection. The suffering as a way to relate to Christ's death on the cross and as he sustains us, a way to experience his life and hope. And then I stood in this room to sing. I sat to hear the word proclaimed by Greg. I knelt to hear Mike lead us in prayer. And I watched you. I watched you doing all those same things. You who are fighting and contending for endurance against the struggles of sin and suffering in this life. I watched you and I heard you sing. Though your situations are excruciatingly difficult, your singing strengthened my heart. I watched you listen to the word, nodding along in agreement with Greg and taking notes, hungry to hear God speak, eager for God to speak through his word. Church, you anchored me in Jesus last week during this gathering. You are still drawing near to God with faith. You are holding fast with hope and you are stirring up with love. You are intent on building your foundation on Jesus' death for our sins and his life, his ongoing prayers on our behalf. If we are going to endure then we need to gather as a family in this space on Sundays and throughout the week in meaningful ways. I'm going to read Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 again as the band comes forward and then we're going to sing together. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Let's stand and sing.